Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Jeremy Adams. He joins us as a renowned school teacher in California. He's written widely in the press about politics and education. He has a new book out entitled Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. That's our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Adams. Thank you. I am absolutely over the moon to be with you today. Thank you so much. Well, now you're, you're talking about the kids. So uh, who, who are you? You, you? you live by yourself. You're, you're, you don't work. You're, you're a hermit in the woods. You never encounter those kids. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm about the most boring person in the world. <laughs> uh, married my high school sweetheart. I graduated from high school, Bakersfield High School, in 1994. And four years later, I was back like a boomerang teaching. So I started teaching high school uh, when I was 22 years old. What subjects? Uh, uh, I teach a government and economics and world history. Mm -hmm. So I am a uh, uh, social studies nerd. Uh, I, teaching is the only thing I've ever really wanted to do with my life. I, you know, I kind of, when I was younger, uh, I was a good student. I went to a great college in Virginia called Washington and Lee University, uh, really fell in love with learning uh, and, and this kind of traditional American ambition to be a name that everybody knows and to make a lot of money and to have somebody point at you and say, wow, I want to be like that guy. You know, that, 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 that was the image I had of myself. And then I went away to college and this really difficult thing happened to me. I, uh, well, I fell in love with learning and I, I realized that, you know, that, that wisdom and, and learning and love and faith and friendship, uh, are a little bit more important than the things you possess. And I, I read a book called The Death of Ivan Ilyich uh, by Leo Tolstoy hmm. uh, that really changed everything for me. So I, uh, I'm a, a little bit of a, a classroom romantic. There's nothing else I've ever wanted to do with my life um, except for, for teaching and, and now writing. And uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about this book. Uh, and I, I really believe it's a, it's a stern and powerful message that we need to get out there because, uh, as I say in the book, I think it is the public school teacher today, not the politician or the pundit, that has a front row seat to American decline. Hmm. Uh, f first, before the book, you've written a lot of essays. Just want, 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 want to be clear. You've been writing for a while about education and, and politics, mostly in California, but many major places. So this book actually follows from a lot of experience in the classroom, but also thinking in bigger terms about education, where education is in America today, how politics enters into things. And so uh, I want, I want to, uh, I, I, th I think you were, you're, you're too modest, I think, in, in, in what you've been, in what you've been doing, at least in the last few years. Now, in the title of your book, let's just get to the, the, the metaphor hollowed out. What makes, in broad terms, because then we'll go into these specific chapters, but in broad terms, what is hollow in their lives? 
Well, first of all, what is hollowing them out and what is hollow in their lives? What's upsetting to me is, to a certain degree, the extent to which this is this is kind of a bit of a, of a sudden sea change. Uh, I, I know people have been, you know, you have the closing of the American mind in 1987, and you have, you know, a lot of books that are are you know kind of you, know, you might call cranky or written by curmudgeons and, <laughs> and talking about you know how awful the kids are. But but I will tell you that some of the changes that I have noticed have really happened in the last five to 10 years. I, I know people are going to see the, the title of Hollowed Out and think that it's, you know, I'm just bashing the kids and actually not. I see, I've been teaching for 23 years. So I really do have a, a kind of trajectory and vision uh, that, that allows me to see these sudden changes uh, in the values and the behaviors of our students. So, mm -hmm. you know, you ask what's hollowed them out. Well, what I've noticed in the last five to 10 years is that a lot of the habits, the values, the traditional attachments uh, that lead to a, a good and a meaningful life uh, are things that are simply missing from their lives. Uh, and that that's, you know, so there's really two pillars of the book. The first pillar is that the values, the love and friendship and marriage and family and faith uh, and, and reading and learning and all of these things that fill us in, Mark, all these things that give us a sense of purpose. Uh, you know, what Nietzsche said that we all have a horizon the thing that gives us a sense of our place in the world is is mysteriously barren from their souls, hmm. uh, and and I and I explore that in the book and, and why. I mean, to be perfectly blunt with you, if what our students were filling into themselves made them, you know, were good for them, they wouldn't be such miserable young people. Um, mm -hmm. And and one of the things that public school teachers are noticing is just how unhappy, how unhappy our young people are, and this is a sudden thing. From 2012 to 2017, the rate of suicide increased over 50 percent. Hmm. Uh, the rate of the rate of self harm from 10 to 24 year olds increased by 63 percent. The word that I hear all the time, Mark, is anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Our young people are not happy. Um, and of course, the second pillar, uh, the first pillar, of course, is that they don't have the values and the habits and the vision to live lives of purpose and meaning. What you know, what the ancients used to call the good life. But the second pillar is I'm a political science teacher. Uh, I, I, I understand the fragility of the American experiment. I, I really believe that America, our way of life, a liberal democratic culture, it's the exception to the rule of history. And young people don't understand that, A. And B, they're not absorbing the habits, intellectual or moral, that would allow us to sustain this, this, this experiment in self-government. And so they are hollowed out. And I, I think it's really important to kind of give the vision of what I'm seeing from the front row seat of the American classroom. You know, it's interesting that you, you talk what you just said about how unusual the American experiment is. This is not, an, this is not the norm in human no. history. It is not the norm for you to have uh, churches side by side filled with people who in the old world, we're, we're killing one another. And that one thing you bring out at the opening of the book is what you call the political illiteracy of the young, that maybe there's a connection between them not realizing how extraordinary the American experiment is and their unhappiness. Would you, would you draw that connection? Oh, I, I know I absolutely would. Uh, I think one of the things that social media has done is that, you know, for most of human existence, 
you were not aware of all the bad news in the village next to you because it had to be in front of your face to know that it was happening. And I think, I don't think, I know that a lot of young people, because they, you know, they live on their devices before the pandemic, Mark, before uh, we were, you know, distance learning and, and, and on the other call of, uh, other side of Zoom meetings all day, our students were on their devices nine or 10 hours a day. I mean, one of the reasons why they are so hollowed out is because all of the screen time has displaced a lot of the, the values and the habits of childhood that are the foundation for a meaningful life. Uh, our young people today, they, they aren't dating. They aren't reading books. Uh, they aren't going to the movies. They aren't going to football games. The desire for marriage and family is in free fall. You know, mm. half, half of all 18 to 34 year olds don't even have a romantic partner. Uh, and so when you look at this, I think a lot of them get their reality from these screens. And you're right. If you just look at the news, you know, uh, George Will, uh, the famous conservative columnist, used to say uh, about journalists, it is not our job to report on the planes that land. And, and I, I get the point. I mean, that's a point well taken. But I do think that the constant, biting, jaded, snarky, cynical, uh, algorithmically produced parade of videos and memes about how bad life is and how horrible America is, I think it gives them a completely distorted view of reality. And like you said, the, like we, if I would make the argument, I think I make the argument in the book, that if you didn't know what color you were, what class you were, what gender you were, what your religion was, who your parents are, if you knew none of it, and you had to pick a time and a place in the history of human civilization, the agricultural revolution all the way to today, if you had to pick a time and a place to be born, I think you would be silly not to be born in a Western liberal nation today. Yeah. I mean, we really are the exception to the rule of, of, of history. And you're so right. The young people sitting in my classroom are the healthiest, wealthiest, freest, most interconnected, capable of knowing anything in the world. And yet they're the most miserable. Well, well let, maybe, me, let, yeah. let me let me just one quick thing. Jeremy, you do not have a classroom of rich kids. I mean, what, what, is, what is the economic, what is the demographic profile of the kids at your school? You know what, Bakersfield High School, one of the reasons I've always loved it is it, is, it really is a melting pot. You have a little bit of everything. You know, I, I, I always, I'm able to teach kind of the American ideal, the, the e pluribus unum concept, because my school has a lot of pride, and, or, or at least it used to. It really doesn't, not as much anymore, which is another example of kids not attaching themselves to institutions at all, which we can get into that later. But, you know, typically it's this idea that it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're a member of our school community, you are a B Bakersfield High School driller. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my students come from all walks of life. And that's, you know, that was another reason, Mark, why I was so motivated to write this book is we're not talking about just one demographic or, or one age or one social class. Really, the things that are hollowing out our young people are affecting everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and let me just also say this with a sense of humility. If anybody thinks that this book, Hollowed Out, is just the frustrations of a, you know, a 23-year veteran teacher in the classroom, I have some very deep regrets as a parent. I have two teenage daughters, which I think has aged me more than COVID ever did. Uh, and uh, I've looked at their values, their behavior, the way they spend their time, uh, and it's, it's shocking. It's galling to me, some of the things they think about their country. Um, <laughs> Religion, it, my students, it, it's not that my, we all know that America is becoming increasingly secular. Uh, I think in the 1980s, 2% of Americans said they were, you know, no religion, and now it's a quarter of them. 
It's not that my students are not religious, Mark. What bothers me is they don't they don't know anything about religion. They just dismiss no. it out of hand. Like, oh, we I don't buy any of any of that stuff. Mm. Um, I, I had a I had a moment a few years ago where I was talking about Easter vacation, and I, and I teach bright kids again. I, I teach these honors and, and AP classes, uh, and I said something about uh, about the resurrection, and, and some of the students looked kind of shocked. And I asked them, "Do you guys even know what the resurrection is?" And if I'm being generous, maybe half, maybe half of the 15 and 16 year olds in my classroom even knew what Easter was. Hmm. So the, the level of religious illiteracy is—it's a pandemic um, hmm. again. So all of these things that, that give you a sense of, of options of how to live your life—they're not there. They're well, not, not there for these young people. You 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 referred a, a few moments ago to the ways in which uh, cynicism, negativity, bad news is constantly pervade to the young. You actually call it an industry uh, later in the book. And that this is one of the causes of an attitude that you get in them that you use the term postmodernism. They have absorbed postmodernism into you know into whatever high school version that would be uh actually what would be the what are the characteristics of that generation z postmodern attitude i would say if you wanted it in a single sentence our students believe in political morality but absolutely not private morality Hmm. so they are absolutists so they believe in justice with a capital j uh, they believe that there is a right and a wrong uh, side of history. You know, one of the things that that is good about my, my my students is they are the least likely people in the world to say they love America, and yet they have no idea how thoroughly they have an American view of justice. Uh, they, hmm. when all these kids are are offended by things that are happening in 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 Charlottesville or 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 when people are not treated equally on the basis of skin color, they, I want to say to them, folks, that's natural law. You believe in a thoroughly Jeffersonian, Lockean, Declaration of Independence, 14th Amendment, Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King, letter from a Birmingham jail view of justice. And so when it comes to politics, they do believe in justice. They do believe in right and wrong. But as I say in the book, when it comes to private decisions about sexual behavior or uh, materialism or what, whatever we're talking about, they become radical, I would say radically subjective. Um, and I would say also that, you know, we always talk about the big division in this country on politics, you know, left and right and liberal and conservative and Bernie bros and, 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 and MAGA. I would tell you, I think the real division is between people who do believe in an overarching objective moral structure to the world and into the universe and, and people who don't. And I would say that young people overwhelmingly don't. What hmm. they really champion is choices and a lack of judgment. It's this really weird metaphysical framework our students live in where you, what's weird is if you judge somebody for doing something that you think is immoral, they are not wrong for being immoral. You are wrong for even passing judgment in the first place. Hmm. And so it's this really weird moral paradigm a lot of young people live in, and they don't even question it. It's like a fish doesn't realize they're swimming around in water 
our young people live in this, they look at the world through a postmodern lens, this radical individualism. And my problem with it, Mark, is that it really bastardizes and it cheapens the beauty and the elegance of human freedom. I mean, I, I think you are a, you know, you are a very prominent intellectual in this country. I'm a high school teacher, but I guarantee the two of us agree that the thing that makes freedom meaningful is when you freely use your liberty to connect to things that are bigger than yourself, that you love, that you, you connect to somebody and you love them. You create a family, you connect to a country and you sacrifice, you connect to a school and you teach there, you connect to a friend and you, and you're there for them. You connect to a God and you, and you, you, you try to and, be faithful. And, and, and so, and they're sorry, not, they're not, you, well, you, you actually use the term a lot, disengagement, but disconnection, yeah. they're not connected to any, I mean, are they connected to anything? Well, I, I would I would call it a, like a cult of the self to a certain degree. It's weird that again they 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 champion choices, but they seem to be indifferent about the quality of the choices that are actually made. I mean that's why, as I was trying to say a second ago, it's interesting they see freedom as a an empowerment of the self. So I don't have to connect to somebody. I don't have to connect to a family or to a country or to a faith because anything that makes demands of us and. I mean, I don't, I've been married for 22 years. My marriage makes a lot of demands of me. I've been a father for 18 years. Being a dad makes a lot of demands of me. I'm a, I've been a teacher that makes a lot of demands. My faith all the time makes a lot of demands. And I think a lot of young people see all the demands that these commitments and this kind of connective tissue places on, on adults. And they say, why would I do that? Why don't I just simply do what it is I want to do? Uh, and of course, we all know that that is a very sophomoric and juvenile, infantile view of freedom. Except the problem is that's what they are doing, um, mm. and that's why that's what that's what's hollowing them out. Uh, is it, it, it is well, well? You you talk about how one of the things it produces is a profound loneliness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's exactly right. Loneliness is not simply being alone. A lot of people are alone, but they don't feel lonely. Loneliness, you can, you can be lonely with somebody else. Loneliness is the state of feeling that you're not experiencing meaningful things with other people. And if you don't have a sense of meaning in your life, it's really hard to have those experiences. Um, my, I think the thing that I would really like to get across to all the listeners in this podcast, that I think high school teachers and, and elementary school teachers are understanding, but maybe non-educators aren't understanding, is we are raising a whole generation of young people who are not in the same physical, mental, moral, or spiritual space as adults. So we are raising a generation that is untethered to adult values, adult expectations, adult role models. Uh, young people today, like I said before, they spend nine to 10 to 15 hours a day on their devices, and there's not a lot of uh, traditional wisdom traditional culture, traditional religion, or how great the country is. It, like I said, it's a toxic stew in the spaces that they consume. So, I mean, young people are going to get values from somewhere. I mean, I'm old enough, Mark. I remember when, you know, Gertrude Himmelfarb made fun of the term values and said, you know, we should be talking about virtues, forget about values. And, and I would be happy with, with just decent values at this point. Um, but our young people are absorbing their values from other children from people on YouTube, from Instagram influencers. When I first started teaching 22, 23 years ago, we would talk about politics, right? And the kids would talk about, well, my mom says this, my dad says this, my, my pastor says this. 
Nobody says that anymore. Nobody talks about their families. Nobody talks about mom and dad and what they think about, about politics. They talk about LeBron James. They talk about all of these people who are kneeling or, 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 or outraged uh, on making these videos on social media. So we've really outsourced the job of influencing young people to people we don't even know in a space that we don't even understand. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, when I was in high school in, in the 70s, there were, there were a lot of couples and and there were some very intense romantic passions uh, out there. Not 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 me. I, I I just kept striking out. But there were there were a lot of a lot of couples, and they were they were they were intense. Do do you see these these passionate love affairs taking place in the high school anymore? I, I don't. No 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 not like they used to. Not like they used to. In fact, there's a whole section in the book uh, where you have all of these headlines from conservative and liberal magazines talking about the sex recession, yeah. talking about how, uh, you know, if you read a lot of, if you read, you know, some of the mainstream, you know, New York times or whatever, and they talk about how people aren't, aren't dating, you know, they always, they always boil it down to something economic. Well, you know, people don't have security in their jobs and they don't have this yeah. and they don't have that. The real truth is that young people have a tough time connecting to another person. And the phrase they use, Mark, is because I can't handle it. Because I can't handle it. And, and that kind of, that vulnerability that love demands of us, uh, the responsibility that uh, a loving sexual relationship would demand of you, what marriage demands. I, you know, I talk about the cult of radical individualism. You know, what I've noticed in some of my younger, you know, my, kind of my former students is they look at marriage as just a, a different way of fulfilling their own individual desires rather than kind of this Tolstoy way of looking at it, which is marriage is a way of transforming the self into becoming a, a, a broader, richer, more resplendent version of who you are. And I mean, I'm a, such a better man for being a husband and being uh, a father and being a teacher. And, and so it saddens me that, that that's how they look at, at marriage uh, as either it's not worth it or if, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't satisfy my own individual needs, then, you know, maybe it's something I don't need to keep on doing. Why do they hate Facebook? Great question. Uh, <laughs> great question. You, you talk uh, well, about this in the book. Yeah, yeah. There, there's two reasons. Well, first of all, it's not hip. It's not cool. It's not chic, right? I mean, you know, they're on TikTok and and Snapchat and and all the things that nobody under 25 would uh, would ever would ever like. But one of the big theories in my book, uh, and one of the reasons why I say this is not your everyday old person angry at the younger generation book is because I would argue that this is the first generation in the history of our species who has really been able to create a space where adults can't go, right? So like every mm -hmm. child would love to have a, at least one room in their home where mom and dad can't go, that where the kid can say anything, watch anything, do anything, and the adults 
aren't going to be there. Well, Facebook is for old people. That's what my students tell me. It's, it's, it's all you old people. If when, about 10 years ago after graduation, I would have all these students follow me on Facebook. Now, nobody does uh, because it's, it, it's a medium for older people. And the reason they don't want to be in Facebook is because adults can watch what they say and what they do. Uh, one of the, one of the things that, that my middle child really helped me to understand is dad, you know, you think that if you follow our Instagram account, you're somehow policing what we're doing. You, you are so far behind dad. We, <laughs> we start with this when we're five years old, we can create four or five accounts. We have spam accounts. We have what they call Finsta accounts. We can hide apps. We can destroy content. We can communicate in a way that you will never be able to follow. And so, you know, there's a part of the book where there's a dean, I think he's in Arkansas, and he confiscates all these phones, right? And so he looks to see what kids are looking at, you know, because again, these kids are in these digital spaces, not Facebook, because we can see what's going on there, in all these spaces. And he said the amount of vulgarity, profanity, pornography, violence, and we're talking 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, is absolutely beyond description. He said, if the parents knew what their children were absorbing for hours upon hours every day, they would be utterly shocked. And, and that's why, as a society, the reason I wrote this book, Mark, is because the adults have got to be adults again. We have got to put ourselves into the spaces, digital, real, moral, intellectual, of our young people, because young people, like I said before, are going to get their values from somewhere. And if they are not traditional adult values, they'll get them from whatever they're absorbing. Uh, on that score, you mentioned that your students found a while back at your school a, a, a student's notebook from 1904. It was from a yes. freshman history class. What, what did that notebook show? Well, it showed two things. First of all, uh, people used to care about penmanship. Uh, and I mean, I, I say that as somebody who has awful handwriting. So if any of my students are listening to this podcast, they're going to say, well, who are you, Mr. Adams? Uh, but, but the second thing, uh, that we were shocked at and all the members of the social studies department gathered around it was the full extent of how much the everyday average American in a public school was supposed to master about antiquity. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you're the first person to ask me about this. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy you did because really our knowledge of the Greeks and the Romans as a civilization, it's not in decline. It, it's virtually non-existent. If you look at the California standards, if you look at the textbook that we use in your kind of everyday high school class in California, the Greeks and the Romans are there, but you covered in a day, mm -hmm. uh, maybe two. Um, and, and what bothers me, and we, we t you asked earlier, you said, you know, kids don't understand that our way of life is not the norm. And, and the framers were very clear about this. And, and Lincoln, in his Lyceum Address, which I think is very underappreciated uh, in the 1840s, understood that if our way of life is going to continue, it has to be renewed in every single generation. You can't, you can't lose one generation in America and expect it to be okay the generation after next. It doesn't work like that. It might work like that in an aristocracy or a monarchy. It doesn't work like that in a liberal democratic society where the, every generation has to absorb a love and an appreciation for the country. And one of the things that worries me about our complete abrogation of responsibility uh, for mastering antiquity is, you know, absorbing Plutarch, absorbing all the lessons of the Athenians and the Romans and the richness of, of, of ancient life. That's what allowed the framers to do what they did. Um, I think they would all tell you, uh, you know, Jefferson couldn't 
you know, Jefferson would not have imagined America without Tacitus. You would never have had a a, a, a Federalist paper uh, without a Publius. You, you never would have had, a, you know, if you look at an index of the Federalist papers, every page mentions the Romans and the Greeks and, 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 and the follies and the wisdom, and they absorb that completely. I mean, you remember in, in, in the founding era when they wanted to either elevate themselves, uh, they would use, you know, what, what, did Was what was Washington's favorite play? Cato, uh, mm -hmm. who, was, who was John Adams's hero? Cicero, and these men made themselves an extraordinary generation by acquiring the wisdom of 2000, 2000 years before and making it their own. Well, we have this complete ignorance of, of what they absorb, and yet we, we somehow expect ourselves to renew the blessings of this country. And I think it's folly to think that we can do so. You know, uh, you actually want to draw some connection between knowledge of the past, awareness of traditions, because that can be a personal thing. For, it's, not just, it's not just a knowledge. It's not just a school subject. It's not just a discipline for a test that they can forget when they leave class. This is a, a deeper formation and it shows up in, it'll show up in better behavior. And on the behavior score, what are you seeing in student behavior? Oh, well, uh, again, you know, I teach pretty bright kids, but, uh, but I would say uh, uh, on a school level, it's the fact that we, we tolerate uh, a lot of bad behavior nowadays. Uh, and, and that's why I talk about hollowed out schools. I mean, it used to be Mark that we said, look, if, if, good values are not being modeled at home, well, we're gonna give it to you at school. If people are speaking incorrectly, grammatically, or in a vulgar fashion at, at home, well, we're not gonna do that here. We're gonna teach you how to speak properly and respectfully here. And something has changed in the last five to 10 years in our country where we now say, well, it's, it's, it's unreasonable to expect young people who come from a difficult background to do these things. And we should therefore forgive bad behavior. And when you do that, the culture changes. I mean, the one thing about bad behavior is that if you allow it to exist and tolerate it, it will proliferate. Right, uh, right. You know, and, and you, know, you talked about the awareness of traditions. Uh, I am, I think you can tell already, I am an absolute romantic uh, of the classroom. I really do believe in the transformative power of a book, a lecture, a teacher, um, a single class discussion. Uh, but the problem is, is you, to a certain degree, uh, I think that being a really good student is kind of like faith. Uh, people who are religious see God everywhere. People who don't believe in God at all don't see God anywhere, even though they're looking at the same physical phenomenon. And I think when you have a lot of young people who don't believe in the transformative power of the classroom, who don't see the value of studying people because they were dead 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago, and therefore you know, they did something that you don't like in the year 2021. I mean, that's, that's probably what bugs me the, the most about this generation is they think that they've reached peak consciousness in 2021 and that you know, nobody who comes after them will change it all. And everybody who came before them was just ignorant and small and didn't understand anything. And, and I would tell you, I don't think human beings fundamentally change. Let me put it that way. When you talk about the awareness of tradition, I think the basic condition of human life, the things that fill us, our follies, our flaws, our hopes, our dreams, the possibilities of joy and happiness and transcendence, these things don't change because I'm an American in 2021. 
Um, and, and, and I think that to absorb this extraordinary reservoir of wisdom and insight from thousands of years of, of the best that's ever been said and done, and to say that I'm not gonna absorb it simply because it's different than the way I look at the world in 2021, what a waste. No wonder we're hollowed out. No wonder we're hollowed out. Because the things that fill me in are largely from people who have been dead for a long time, and yet they understood things that we have forgotten today. Uh, there's much, much more to talk about in in the book, uh, but let me uh, allow you, Jeremy, just to describe the, the last sections of the book, the appendices and what those appendices do. Are you, are you talking about the 1776 project? Right, right. The the historical political materials. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my, my publisher thought it'd be a good idea because I do mention this. Uh, is that there is uh, one of the things again, uh, something really different in the last five to ten years, uh, is the way that my students look at the country today and its history. Uh, I always get a little frustrated because I think some of my students think that they are the first generation to realize that there's a lot of bad episodes in American history. And so there's this huge Grand Canyon chasm between the way that older Americans, let's call them the silent generation, looks at America vis-a-vis -vis millennials and Gen Z. 94% of the silent generation say that America has a history to be proud of. One in five millennials today think that the American flag is a symbol of hate. I see a lot of frustration out there with a lot of Olympians and athletes because they're young and they have a view of the country that I think is so difficult for us to understand. But let me try and, and, and explain it this way, and I think it will answer your question about the materials on the back of the book. Older Americans look at all of these awful things in our history, and there's a lot there, and I'm a big believer that we should know them. We should study all of the bad things that have happened, all of the things where we did not live up to our ideals. We should know them. But I think older Americans say, look, these things happened but that's not the real America. The real story of America is not the slavery. It's the Civil War and the 13th Amendment. Yeah. The story of America is not segregation. It's the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the 24th Amendment. The real story of America is not the, 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 these, these men in Charlottesville uh, one night protesting things that we find disgusting. It's the thousands and thousands, the 99.9% .9 of us who say that's not the real America. So older Americans say it's not where you start that represents who you are as a country. It's what we've done and the American ideal that we've inched closer to, and we take pride in that. Whereas I think young people will look at an episode from 30 or 40 or 200 years ago and say, that, that's the real America. And if you guys knew it, you wouldn't be so proud. So, you know, there's this competing, you know, 1619 project versus the 1776 project. And there was all this criticism of the 1776 project. And yet I would tell you, Five or six or 10 years ago, it would have been the most blase thing in the world because I think there wasn't enough negativity about American history. It, it, it got a lot of criticism. I think that's really revealing of the way that a lot of young people look at the country. The book is Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. Jeremy Adams, thank you for joining us. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.
Thank you.